Welcome to Design Talk. I'm Alan Higgins. This episode is part of a series of interviews with game designers, publishers, researchers and the public recorded at the Essen Spiel. We're in the educator section at Spiel. Um, Michael, tell me a little about where you're from. I'm from the University of Coimbra. I'm Mikael Souza, and I'm a PhD student. Hopefully, I'll be a PhD in the start of 2023. So it's not very far beyond, I guess. Uh, and I'm here as a OB player, also as a content creator for OB board games in Portuguese, but also as a researcher and to, to connect with other people that are creating and using board games as serious games or as, or as gamification projects. So I've been following you and your posts on social media and you're a very prolific uh, workshop facilitator and facilitating design for serious games. Yes, I, I try to do some of these workshops and most of them appeared as a necessity. Uh, because when we create games, we need to create a systematic uh, methodology and approach to create our games. And uh, nothing is better than teaching this method- methodology to, to others. And then I started to have some opportunities to create some small workshops and then they got bigger. And then I was invited to, as a guest lecturer and a guest teacher for some universities to uh, expose and share my approach to game design and to especially for video games which is surprising because I don't know how it is in the UK but we don't have any courses of of board game design in Portugal just video games but they are essential to teach how to create video games so we need to learn how to prototype and then I don't know how it is in the UK but in Portugal um, we don't have any kind of specific research center for serious games or for gamification. They are more like projects that happen associated with other research centers. For example, my research center, it's about spatial planning. And, this is, and I propose a method to use serious games as a tool for a collaborative and participatory process to create a more inclusive way for the citizens to participate. So the games are a tool for me. That's fascinating that uh, it's the social sciences perhaps seeing the potential for serious games um, as a teaching mechanism and rather than uh, games themselves being a research object or, a, or an educational object of, of universities. It tends to live on the edges, I suppose, of the university um, sector, education as such. Um, and in particular, this, um, you're the first to mention teaching game tabletop game design first as a prelude to video game design. I'm intrigued by that. I think that's really insightful. It's very important. We have some books about that. One of the most known ones, it's from Brenda Romero, uh, that created a lot of serious games. And there's some other authors. What's important in this is because when we teach some video game students, they need to have, as any other field of study, of work, they need to have um, a culture about what they are working about and they are working with games so they should know all the types of games that are available and this is one of the important uh, 
things to work with board games in video games. The other uh, approach is, as in other kind of development process, as a design approach, we need to create our mock-ups, our prototypes first. We will not start creating and coding a complex game without knowing if the game works or engages the users. So we create and we, I try to, to argue this and to claim for this approach that we can, we should create our prototype first, test it in an analog way, not very pretty, not very fancy, but to be sure that it works. And then we will invest in the coding, in the graphic design and all that expensive and long process that video games and top video games have. I'm intrigued. You mentioned Brenda Romero, and yeah, she has published some amazing uh, serious games examples, and uh, they've, they've become famous. And I suspect, as you say, physical prototyping, uh, like a, a tabletop prototyping, is part of her design process. Yes. We must meet her and, and, and ask her that question sometime. Yes. Um, I would love to meet her. Yeah, I'm sure we'll come to Ireland uh, and, and meet up with her. She's uh, based in Galway these days. Ooh. And, um, and deeply involved in uh, Empire of Sin, which has been released already, a video game available on Steam and other platforms, even Switch, I believe. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, but I'd be intrigued to, to ask her what, what tools she uses as mm -hmm. part of the design process for, those, um, for, for, for that particular product and other projects she's been involved in. Let's um, back up a little, though. Um, the whole area of games and, and, and entertainment media in the university, the universities tend to neglect that section of industry rather, yes. um, rather badly, I think. So it's great to see that uh, Portuguese universities, uh, even if it's in the social sciences as a, as a, a, a facilitation and workshop mechanism, is, is using games seriously uh, in education. Can you tell me a little about um, why you come to Spiel? This is your first time. This is my first time. I was planning to come here earlier and some previous years, but my second child was born, so it was impossible. <laughs> this is one of the main reasons. But I'm here to feel the culture, because we need to feel the culture of this industry, of this hobby and this culture. But what I think uh, it's different about this, that this is a a hobbyist world, a hobbyist culture. And there's a, a, a culture of hobbyists, there's a lot of passion. And from passion, there's a lot of different projects and not a lot of innovation and creativity. And uh, I think that these academic projects, most of them start as a passion from the researchers, not something that is funded, that is uh, uh, strategic, uh, uh, objective of the institutions, something that comes from the passion of the research and the teachers that already work in the universities in the research centers. So you see these parallels between yes. the game, I'm not going to call it industry, let's call it ecosystem and community. Yes. I think and it's, it's a better definition, yeah. ecosystem. Yeah. Yes. And uh, a point that you, you touched on there, I think, is that there's so much variety here, but that's not a negative. In fact, uh, that ecosystem, that community thrives on variety, doesn't it? No, yes. no one game is going to dominate because that's not what people want. Yes, yes, it's the variety. And the, what, I, I believe that one of the strongest um, dimensions of board games is the users can adapt them. Uh, DAO's rules, everything like that. 
they can create new components. We see a lot of people with 3D printing creating new components, creating alternative versions. And most of these gamers, at the, same, at, at the point of their life, they will create a game. It, it may not, might never be published, might never be a success, but they will create something. And this is very different from the, the other fields of gaming because we are engaged and we are creators and every player creates its own type of game in different game. And now I think we are seeing more variety, for example, more women creating games, minorities, and we are seeing a lot of good results of variety. Yeah, and I, I like the idea that a game can be there and the players can actually adapt it to their own house rules. Yes. You know, they learn a particular way or different ways of playing the same game. And so there's, and that's to sort of emphasize that there is the designer and the design intent for the, the, the game, the product itself, but the players themselves are involved in, in at sort of a, a design appropriation during play. Um, and so everybody is, as you say, a kind of designer in, yes. in a way. Um, do many of the uh, workshops that you facilitated, um, do you feel, or has anyone reported back to say, well, I, I love the idea so much that I'm, I'm actually going to prototype it and try and, try and develop it further? Yes. Uh, most of my workshops started as uh, workshops for training skills. Because what uh, some professors, teachers asked me and uh, some other trainers is, can you uh, suggest me some game to train a specific thing. This is uh, the first question that they do. I know they exactly. I've got colleagues looking for a game to illustrate their concept or yes. their project. And I say, no, that doesn't exist. You need to create it. Uh, that is, this is not a recipe ready for use. It's not a panacea to solve all the world's problems. It's not like that. But you do have a tool set, don't you? Yes. Usually I, I group the games for some kinds of skills. For example, if we want to train communication, creativity, we can use some games, can adapt them a, a bit, make some tweaks and modifications to, to connect to the objective, and now you create a serious game from a, an ortho game. And so that's game. using an existing game as an inspire point yes. to develop a variation for a niche area. Exactly. Okay. Exactly. For example, Dixit is, by the presentations in the Educators Day, I thought a lot of researchers are using Dixit for a various purpose. So it's one of example and there's a lot of a lot more examples of games that are used like this, adapted. And uh, I've created some also papers about the modding. It's a modding effect of of approaching games to create series games. Um, it started like this. They asked me games to train skills, and then I realized and the people that uh, were participating in the workshops asked for more. And they realize, oh, so this is not a recipe ready for use. I need to create something specific. So we need to enter in game design. And now I'm creating other types of workshops to introduce people to game design. And I'm also working in a framework that I've been testing three times. I will test next week more, two more times how to create a serious game with a framework similar to the MDA but with some variations, more adapted to analog game dimensions, so they can create a serious game in two hours. 
a prototype, not a full game. But obviously, yeah, you don't want to oversell it either. That you're uh, that they un they understand that this is work in progress. Yes. It's an early. It's similar to what you see in industry in in the digital industry sector with sprints and and rapid development. Yes. Um, and some of them are unrealistic. Obviously, they run over five days, perhaps as a exercise. But they, they, you know they don't produce a finished product, and yes. you can't produce a finished game after of two hours. Not. Of no. course not. It's a way to start, so they can realize what can they do and what can they cannot do. The limitations in where you can go with our product, with our project. Um, what are your tools? My tools. In what sense? Okay, um, you're starting a facilitation. Okay. Well, I'm a Lego serious play facilitator yes. myself, so my tools are obvious. They're Lego okay. bricks. Um, what are your tools? Uh, paper, uh, blocks? My tools are the games itself, themselves. Uh, because you need to have a lot of game knowledge and you need to have a, a, game, a huge game collection. For example, I have some games I have eight copies of the same game and sometimes I mix them together to create a new experience so you need to have a lot of game knowledge be aware of what's being released what's what's available have them need to have them in a, a big quantity because some of these training sessions or when we use them in classes sometimes we have uh, 14 students it's huge you need a lot of games uh, and then you can use this with simple um, game components. Usually I, I buy some of the components, the components that standard games have, cubes, meeples, something like that to add them because we need to, to add or to remove something. And then the, the, the standard uh, objects like the post-its, pens, uh, something like that. In terms of preparation, um, do you find uh, you need to invest a lot of time in, in giving your participants a shared understanding of the knowledge of the underlying mechanics? How much time do you spend on talking about design itself as an abstract concept? Yes, this was a learning process for me. Uh, in the first uh, training sessions that I've done, I've created a lot of expositive content and it they were disengaged after 10 minutes. It was a problem. What I do now, I start playing some games, I do an introduction, then I, we play some games, and then I do a debriefing where I, I uh, evoke some of the content that we spoke during the presentation. For example, what's a game mechanism, uh, the feedback loops, something like that. And then when they have an example, they can learn better and they, they retain the information. So it's something that we need to adapt. So first playing and then with the proper examples and complement with the facilitation after playing the games. And I've, I'm, I'm developing uh, a process for the facilitation for, for these games. I hope to publish it next year. I, I guess no, I'll have yeah. enough uh, data. Yeah, no, that's really wise. Um, I know what you mean in terms of uh, just pre 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 presenting expository content. Um, that sort of setting a baseline yes. of educational material is actually quite boring. People switch off after a few minutes. And uh, I, 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 like you, try to get people playing tactile games, uh, game, games in a present sense early and that sets the tone. And I think what we both rely on 
is because games are intrinsic to the human condition, people have a lot of innate knowledge anyway about it. So all we're doing is reawakening it rather than teaching it to them. And uh, as you say, a good example lets them vary and take uh, inspiration points. So yeah, and no, that's really wise. I, I, I think that's a really good... And, and that, that approach, I don't know, I believe that you, sh you are familiar with it, the Ludem approach. I was not aware of Ludem's. I, 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 uh, I discovered them two years ago, I guess, and then all makes sense. There are Ludems that pass from game to game. There are uh, patterns and some elements. And like you said, if you can invoke these patterns, you can create continuous learning experiences and the users will learn the games more easily. I'm fascinated um, by that, actually, that concept, because that's kind of like a, that's a theoretical uh, idea that people are toying with, that it's but sort of very philosophical. <laughs> yeah, a bit philosophical, but still um, something that people get because it's a human condition. Tell me, what are, the, uh, what are some of the good readings and, and writers and authors from a scholarly perspective in games and game design? Well, what I usually suggest is Rules of Play from Salen Zimmerman. Great game, great great book, and yet it's a complicated book. Yes, it, very it looks complicated. really unstructured, but it's it's so full of uh, full of good stuff, uh, valuable valuable information. Another book that I enjoy it's characteristics of games from Elias and Garfield, uh, some others. Um, what, what, one one book that I always use is the tabletop. Uh, uh, mechanism Encyclopedia. It's not exactly that. It's from Je uh, Jeffrey Engelstein. It's excellent to uh, to to see the mechanisms and uh, uh, the game about uh, gamers' brain. Uh, yeah. Okay. Um, I kind of like Jesse Shell's game lenses. Yes, of course. Um, again, they're more a sort of. Um, deck of ideas uh, that rather than, than a book <laughs> than a book or a, a, a sort of but very useful too in fact um, and then from a philosophical perspective uh, Huizinger I think maybe um, yes. in sort of the sociology of game and play the ludic homo ludens um, I, I kind of like that but uh, yeah no it's a huge area Calois um, uh, there's, there's both deep rich philosophy and there's sort of um, applicable, uh, usable technique in all of these literature you've mentioned. Um, it's fantastic. Well, thank you for um, uh, taking the time to talk with me today. Is there anything else you'd like to uh, mention before we wrap up? Well, I'd like to thank for this opportunity to, to share some of my experiences. Uh, and the, it's fascinating for me having someone from another country interesting, interested in what I'm doing. Because sometimes... Uh, uh, in the, the academic world, we are not uh, considered when we try to do these kinds of approaches. And I, I had some uh, ex negative experiences that we need to be resi resilient to overcome and to continue to to defend this perspective of using games for purpose. And I, I think uh, you've got uh, huge resilience, um, but there's a huge appetite also for your ideas and the work of games and games in, in both business, in the social sciences, in the arts, in the physical sciences. So I think it's uh, the future is positive, particularly as nearly everybody plays games. Yeah. Yeah.
So I'm here with Zio from Capital Games Studio Singapore, and Zio's here in the educator space at Spiel. And Zio, I was drawn to your table because you have a game titled Cryptocurrency. Tell me about yourself, your business, and the game. Uh, hi everybody. Uh, my name is Zio. Uh, I'm from Singapore. So my cap my my company is Capital Games Studio, and uh, we design finance themed games. So we started as a financial kind of uh, education company, but uh, over the years we have kind of uh, expanded to family games and uh, news line to cover media about Singapore. So just to share about cryptocurrency. Uh, so what happened was that this game uh, we we started during the first the second cryptocurrency boom actually. We started designing in 2017 and the game was out in 2018. So uh, that was when the crypto went up and it crashed and that, that was also when there was a lot of scams like uh, the Bitcoin scams. So in in today there's also a lot of uh, big uh, cryptocurrency crashes. So when we did this game the, the concept is twofold uh, one is to teach them about how to identify scams cryptocurrency scams so in this game one of the four crypto coins that you are going to mine and invest in will turn out to be a scam okay but however which coin is a scam you will not know until uh, the end of the game so players have to deduce based on the rumor cards on the on the on the different uh, coins to deduce which kind of scam and try to get rid of it before the whole thing implodes Okay, so that happens during the bear market when so many cryptocurrency will implode. So another objective is to teach uh, the students about the concept of mining, how cryptocurrency is being mined. So a lot of people have very rough concept on how is it being done. So they just know that you need to plug a computer to the internet and then you start running it and it's being run. Okay, so we talk about like hash, uh, how to crypto keys, all these kind of things, and how do you crack the thing, and how do you mine, how do you get the validation fee, and how do you get the reward from the coins. Okay, so the whole concept is still based on the proof of work concept. Uh, although we see increasingly a lot of cryptocurrency moving to a proof of stake concept, uh, which is more environmental friendly because you don't do emit too much carbon by burning up too much uh, electricity. So uh, this is what the entire game is about. Okay, so maybe your next revision of this game or the next version will have a kind of proof of work uh, trading off against proof of stake. I, I, I think it will be fun that if we go on to NFT because a lot of the NFT is based on the proof of stake uh, concept. Uh, Solania, Ethereum, all these are proof of stake. Uh, now Ethereum has gone to proof of stake. So uh, it will be interesting. And I think NFT will make the game look nicer because there are graphics on this kind of thing. So yeah, I think that will be interesting. Yeah, sure. You've also got great graphics on this game already. The design qualities are great. I'm intrigued by the fact that, well, the, you're, you're talking about it being a... Um, uh, focused on risk avoidance, I suppose, avoiding the scam. What are the win conditions? There's obviously a lose condition there. Uh, of course, as in any crypto investor, the win condition is the player with the most money. Okay, so of course, if you manage to buy too many scam coins, you probably cannot win the game. Okay, and I see um, that you've got a, a sort of a bank or a, a tracking status yes, of the overall position yes, of all right. the players. It's yeah. a four-player game. Yeah, yes, it's a four-player yeah. game. So, and a little about your business. You grew out of educational games, like uh, games for education. Yes, that's and right. And you've moved into um, commercial tabletop, in a sense. Yes, that's right. Yeah. How has that been for you? Is, it, is, is that like a, a pivot? Do, do you find the two needs address perfectly well in the same box or do you have to uh, change the design for the different audience? Uh, yes, the design has to be changed. Uh, the problem with uh, finance games uh, is that 
uh, the designer has to have a good understanding of both finance and game mechanics design. So that's always a challenge because uh, finance and board games uh, don't usually mix that well. I mean, I don't know a lot of uh, a, a lot of uh, bankers turn game designers, but I mean, there's a lot of uh, other people turn game designers. And yet, all good games, or at least a certain broad swathe of games, have a mini economy in them. Yes, that's right. Yeah, but uh, typically they do not target the learning objective. So it's as sort of part of the mechanics to drive the game force, whether it's like workers placement or or to buy sell resources, all these kind of things. But there's no specific targeting on what is the outcome of the thing. So I think one of the key things about education games and the normal games is that the education games has uh, they plan they design based on the education outcome, the objective, uh, before they start on work on the game. Whereas uh, conventional game design is the bottom up mechanics first, then you tag on whatever team and uh, and the material on it. So I, I think the design thinking and the concept comes from a different direction. For sure. So cryptocurrency is fundamentally about market failure. Yes, that's right. Um, and uh, yeah, so it has this strong financial angle, new financial um, instruments. Are you getting your games, uh, the educational games, validated by educators in the university sector? Uh, actually, we attended a number of uh, awards over here. So uh, there is a Serious Play Awards. Uh, it's a very small thing, but they look at digital and, 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 and board games. Uh, I think this is in US. Uh, so I think some of the games won awards. Uh, like uh, Dirty Money won an award, Cryptocurrency won an award. So they basically uh, give awards to games that uh, gamify uh, subjects uh, well for education. Then I think we are also participating in the UK Game Awards. So uh, some of it is for, is they focus mainly on education. I'm not sure whether you heard of them. So yeah, so yeah, so I, I think uh, we do work with educators on this. Uh, in fact, we have we have a whole courses and workshop in Singapore and Malaysia. I was going to ask about that. Yeah. Um, is your local market your kind of key test market? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Okay. So local uh, Singaporean educators are are any of them using some of these games? In yeah. Their in, in fact, uh, for Wonga Mania, uh, we. Hosted across all the universities Wonga in uh, university. Mania. Yeah. Okay, so Wonga Mania is again it's a market failure game, isn't it? Uh, no, it, it's a game about economic cycle. Ah, right. Okay, so it's uh, in in short, uh, all the all then deal with different teams and deal with different kind of mechanics. So, example, Wonga Mania deal with the economic cycle and how do you how to as a class react in different uh, market cycle. So we have bonds, we have stocks, and we have properties. So it's like when interest rate rise and falls, you know, it affect bonds, it affect stocks, all these kind of things. So basically, the objective of this game is how do you uh, manage a portfolio of stocks, property, and bonds uh, through different economic cycle, through uh, recovery, uh, expansion, stagnation, and recession. So this is the gist of the game. So uh, this game was deployed in uh, Malaysia across all the investment clubs uh, to teach students about uh, economic cycle. Okay, so that's uh, an interesting angle to get into the educational sector. You see student educational uh, sort of uh, investment clubs yep. in the universities. That's right. Um, and this is at university level. Yes, that's right. And they'll be playing these games. It's part of their social engagements, also part of their kind of um, value engagement yeah, with yes, each other. Correct, right, correct, okay. correct. Um, so that, that gives me a, a great sense of how you reach into uh, a target market. Yep. And ideally then that seeps into the educational um, uh, Anger, curriculum. Yes. Yep, correct, that's right. right. Okay. Um, is serious games for uh, tertiary education a big thing? I know it's uh, very big at the, um, at the primary and secondary mm -hmm. level. Uh, yes, it's a, it's a pretty big thing because uh, 
I, I guess uh, that is the, the stage at secondary where the students are very curious about the world. The adulting is a big thing in Singapore. So they want to learn about finance. They want to learn about, especially youth, they want to learn about cryptocurrency because a lot of them, the first thing they want to invest in oh, is cryptocurrency rather than the boring stocks and, and bonds. But uh, that, that, there is a, a, a lot of uh, interest about uh, all these subjects uh, when they start to work. And uh, we find that the students are getting more and more interested in these kind of topics at the early age. In fact, uh, we've engaged uh, students as young as uh, 10 years old and we talk to them about uh, NFT, they know what's NFT. <laughs> so we talk about cryptocurrency, we talk about insurance, uh, we talk about stocks. So some of them even own stocks because the parents start a trust fund for them. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, high net worth individuals. And uh, for the university um, sector, yep. um, the, uh, the more adult, would they be put off by the sort of playful aspect of these uh, tools? Uh, I okay. I guess the older folks, maybe at uh, uh, sixty and above, that it's not serious enough. Uh, it's not serious enough. Okay, they prefer to attend workshops. They prefer to sit down and you know the traditional workshop lecture style. Uh, increasingly, for the young adults, uh, they prefer to learn. Uh, there's a lot of gamification. So uh, there's two ways to look at it. One is that there are people who are not interested in it, and uh, by introducing them through a game, uh, it helps in uh, helping them get into the subject matter. And of course, there's those who are interested. So this act as an initial layer, and for them to explore uh, deeper after they have uh, tried the initial uh, the initial try and understanding the topic itself. Right. Okay. And um, out of interest, have you had any people who are actively trading in bit in, in digital currencies playing the game? Uh, yes, we have. Yeah. In fact, we went uh, if. Uh, for the audience, uh, crypt, uh, if you look at the recent crypto uh, thing, a lot of the crypto companies that went bust actually is in Singapore, like Luna Terra. Uh, it's a, one of the big stable coins that went bust, and, and it's like the layman moment in cryptocurrency last year. Uh, no, I think it's this year, yeah. So, so yes, actually, there is, uh, Singapore is very welcoming of cryptocurrency companies, although they try to regulate it. So a lot of cryptocurrency companies actually has their HQ over in Singapore. So we basically brought the game over to let them validate the test, and they all say that this is one of the most accurate uh, uh, interpretation of cryptocurrency oh, for a game that's kind yes. of easy to get into yeah that's a really incredible thing because it's a tough area to introduce very difficult very yeah. difficult yeah um, and i suppose you're looking for uh university level educators to evaluate using this in their teaching yes or, that's right yeah. yeah okay so zio while you're here in essen do you have any plans to talk to publishers other publishers or distributors you're a publisher yourself. yes that's you. right uh yes so actually we are looking for european publishers uh we haven't uh we haven't uh, really uh went very deep inside uh europe uh, to look for publishers so yeah so we are looking for partners that can that is uh, interested to localize uh the, the our games and of course to distribute uh in winning the european markets um, just uh, your manufacturing, how do you manufacture? Is it local to Singapore or do you outsource to...? Uh, we manufacture across different countries. Uh, we have manufacturers from Taiwan, from China, from... Uh, now we're looking at India for manufacturing, yeah. So, yes, uh, we don't manufacture in Singapore because we don't have the manufacturing capacity to do board games anymore in Singapore. So, sad to say, uh, Singapore has more, more or less become something like a service hub. Uh, we deal with, at most, uh, the manufacturing we deal with uh, silicon, uh, all the chips. Uh, most of the time, our big industry is banking and finance. It's, we are like a Switzerland 
of uh, Southeast Asia right now. So yeah, so we don't have much manufacturing capacity. Well, it's a good problem to have in a, in a sense because uh, you've outsourced that as a nation to um, places that have more space, I guess. So tell me, uh, localization, um, where are your biggest markets? Uh, the, our biggest market is uh, currently at around Asia. So we distribute uh, among uh, Singapore, Malaysia. That's our two main markets. Uh, we are in Hong Kong, uh, Japan, and uh, Thailand. Uh, I think we have a few distributors in US, uh, one in Canada, but it's not all the titles, uh, some limited titles. Uh, I mean, as usual, the different distributors have different uh, community that they are serving. You're looking to expand. You're looking to expand in Europe and yes, North yes, America. Right. Yeah, that's right. And that's South right. America too, I presume. Uh, South America, I haven't been there yet. Okay. So uh, I have no idea. But if there is anyone that uh, can introduce us the way, I will appreciate that very much. Right. And uh, partially, I suppose, you'll get to meet people from other uh, regions yes, here, right. publishers, yeah. distributors, yeah. everything. Yeah. Do you have many meetings lined up? Uh, yes, Saturday and Sunday, yes, quite Brilliant. a number of meetings. And, um, and just to, to, to um, tell us a little about why you chose to come to Spiel. Why Spiel? Mm. Uh, I, I guess uh, we've been to a number of conventions. Spiel is the most diverse convention I've ever seen. Diverse is in the diversity of the countries, the games, the people. So uh, we see a lot of uh, games from other countries, uh, like especially from other parts of Asia. Uh, sometimes uh, we don't even know they exist until we saw that in Spear, then we'll go and visit that in the country. Hey, you know, your games are interesting. Uh, maybe you want, want to license it or you know, we want to look at it to bring to Singapore or something like that. And uh, we also see games from uh, on things that we usually cannot buy on Amazon or things that we cannot buy from Singapore. So uh, I guess I've seen uh, publishers from Africa, from Latin America, it's a great uh, melting from pot. Eastern you really Europe, see yeah, and then you? I've seen Nordics, uh, which I've never <laughs> seen any of the games from the Nordic region. And yeah, so it is a great melting pot as compared to uh, some of the other conventions. And I guess uh, they are not called one of the world's largest board game convention for nothing. And um, how many times have you been? Oh, uh, four or five times, I guess. Yeah. Right, okay. And you're times. coming back, I presume, next year. Uh, yeah, hopefully, if nothing happens. I mean, we kind of skipped two years uh, during the pandemic. Yeah, so I think the last time I was here is 2019. Yeah, and then, um, well, two years we couldn't come then. Oh, this year it's come and it's back. I, it looks huge. It looks huge this, this year. Yeah, I think it's it the largest changed. ever. It hasn't yeah. changed at all, really. And it's as busy as ever. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, look, that's really amazing. Uh, do you have anything, any last words you'd like to say before we wrap up? Uh, I don't think so, but if you are interested, you can please do check out our website at capitalgainstudiogroup.com. Perfect. Thank you very much. So I'm here talking with Sarah Favaron, uh, brand manager with Asmode Research. And Asmode is one of the biggest game companies in the world, isn't it? Yes, it is. And we are very proud to work for uh, Asmode because we can uh, discover and work on very different games and a lot of uh, different brands. Tell me a little about your own background first, Sarah. My own background. I have studies on um, uh, cognitive functions. And then I work on the publish, book published for children during 10 years. And then I joined the Asmode company. 
So you've got a background in uh, cognition, cognitive development, education. Yes. Um, what is Asmodee's uh, interest in education? Because it's a game company, isn't it? Yes, it is. But uh, games could be very interesting in the education. And uh, it's for all this topic, we create the Asmodee Research. It's the CSR department of Asmodee. And where we uh, work on um, scientist re research about board games. Then we created a line for uh, people with cognitive disorders because we proved with our research that board games was very great for solicited cognitive functions. And we will work uh, since last, next year on uh, education specifically. So you've, you've, you've got presented here a number of products that support both um, development and cognitive engagement, I suppose. Yes. Um, and it's supported by science. Yes, of course. We work with a lot of experts from science, from health, from board games uh, to create this line and we test it with uh, all the person implied. Now I'm looking at the, the stand you have here and you've got two games I immediately recognize, Double and yes. Timeline. And yeah, I, I, I kind of had a, had a sense that both of those games had an educational value to them. But you've, all, you, you've got special versions here for teaching settings, haven't you? Yes. And what have you done, what have you changed uh, uh, to make it more amenable for a classroom environment? Uh, we made cards bigger because it's very important and uh, more easier to manipulate. Uh, because for person with cognitive disorder, it was very important to have a simple And material. for children too. And for children too, of course. And we had uh, we have three levels of difficulties uh, to progress, or maybe sometimes if you're tired, you can, you can regress. It's not a problem. So everybody can play with everybody, and that's for us very important. On timeline, we have a biggest card too, and we had a timeline to to have a visual. Uh, to, to see yeah, so you've got this visual prop with the timeline <laughs> yes. of a spectrum maybe or a, a, a sort of storytelling bar. So you've actually got different modes of using timeline yes. in an educational setting. Yeah, um, Really good. Now, timeline's tricky because it's uh, text and visual, right? Yes. So exactly. you have to translate and, and make your text available for each of the, your markets. Um, but double is very straightforward, isn't it? It's purely symbols. Yes, and we selected the very carefully the symbols because uh, some of them in the classic games was not uh, uh, people are not able to recognize them. So right, so you got variation on color, size, shape, yes. um, uh, evocative imagery. I'm very familiar with that, but yeah, you've you've, you've even amplified it here somewhat. Now, Access Plus, which is Asmodee's um, educational and developmental product line. It's also more health line. It's, uh, say that again? More health line. More of a health line. Yes. So it is intended to be a therapeu ther therapeutic or a developmental yes, instrument? Yes, it's, it's a non... Not just for education, no, but for intervention. No, it's for all people with cognitive disorder. That's okay. the target. Um, cortex challenge here. Now yes. that's... That's something I haven't seen. Can you tell me a little about the ideas behind Cortex Challenge? Yes, it's a challenge uh, game. So you you pick a card and you have a challenge on it. And the first people who resolve it uh, win the cards. 
And um, the specificity of Cortex is the tactile cards. So you have uh, some special varnish on the cards and uh, only with the touch you can guess what it, what's the symbol on it. And, uh, and who do, whose needs does that address, um, do you think? The tactile, the tactile nature. Um, why is that important? Or who who benefits from having the tactile? It's because it's it's um, with the tactile you can solicit your memories and uh, your projection. Okay, so it's a sensory variation yes. that you introduce into the the playing materials. Exactly. Um, it's not specifically for visual impairment for facilitating players with no. visual impairment. No. no okay. Um, yeah. No. And and it's a. It, it, visually, it's it's engaging. It's large cards, and I see you've got a very uh, language-free design or communication elements on the cards themselves. Yes. You're communicating purely with imagery, um, yes. symbols. Uh, the two dots represent more difficult than the one dot card. The colors represent well. That's another representation of difficulty, is it? Blue yes. versus green. Yes, exactly. Um, could you tell me a little about brand development and brand management? Um, that's what you're doing. Yes, of course. Uh, on my side, I'm on um, editorial development. So I work on the adaptation of the games. And uh, I work with a team of experts. And we choose uh, which game will be adapted. And uh, we have to think uh, about a lot of things. And uh, to, to my mission is to... To complete the the range, it's choosing the range to be very, uh, I don't know, a, a complementary between the the new games they will arrive. And so, so the titles have to fit within the product family that you have here. Yes, exactly. Um, and new product development has to slot in, I suppose, to areas you've identified. Yes, and the cognitive function and the. With the adaptability of the games because it's very important for us and then the notoriety of the games it's important too because these games create a social relationship and uh, when you know the double you, you, you could be attractive by and so you, you could play with all people around you How have you identified gaps that are yet to be met in your product range? Are you looking for gaps to be filled in the, develop, in, in, in the access plus range? It's about a cognitive function that we, we would like to, to have a range to who can play with whole cognitive function. Um, it seems interesting that uh, Asmode has a, a research-centered um, product development yes. group, um, Access Plus. Do you think some of the innovations that you're de uh, developing here in the Access Plus are going to go into the main products that you serve, your mass market products? Yes, we work a lot on that, uh, on uh, Daltonism, for example. It's uh, something who a lot of studios, a lot of uh, brand manager, head of products uh, have in mind. So, And um, let, uh, I think uh, step by step we, we, we will... Uh, arrive to discuss with them and say this could be inserted in every game and could be more accessible for everybody. That's one of our mission too. Fantastic. So you are the experts in access within Asmode and you might even have a role within other product line developments in exactly. assessing how accessible their product mix, the, the, the presentation, the pieces, the layout, everything is. And I suppose I, I mentioned the idea of gaps in the developmental and um, uh, 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 therapeutic 
product line here because we see three products, yes. three games. Um, I suppose Asmodo's back catalogue offers you rich uh, material for bringing new products in. Yes, of course. And uh, then we will see if we adapted only Asmodi games or if we will create uh, new games from scratch. Well, that's, we will see. That's the beginning for us. Yeah, that's a, it's, it's fantastic. Uh, you're, you're, a publish, you're, you're within a publishing environment, so if you do have an in-house idea, it's probably going to get treated seriously, maybe. Um, but you've also got ideas that you can bring into your yes, own sector. Um, can you tell me about why Spiel? Why are you here at Spiel? Um, Asmode family is, is at Spiel because it's a very great uh, fair and we would like to be here, of course. And we're here because of the, um, uh, the uh, Spiel Educational Day and tomorrow the Spiel Research Day with Asmode Research. Uh, and we had some conferences uh, this morning to present uh, our researches and uh, some of our experts are here to talk about the board game in science and uh, to present Access Plus 2. Have you been to Spiel before yourself? No, it's my first. <laughs> because of the uh, pandemic and everything. Uh, but uh, I'm really happy to be here. It's uh, fantastic. Yeah, yeah. No, it's fantastic. Um, well, look, is there anything you'd like to say before we wrap up? No, just um, have a great game. That's the most important. Yeah, thank you very much. And, and thank you for talking with us. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode. Music is Hades from the album Chromatic T-Rex by Ben Prunty. 